So I was really excited about this. I said, Scott, how many more of these are there? He said, well, I'll show you the back room. And he took me into this musty back room that was poorly ventilated and it had stacks, about 1800 audio reels just stacked to the ceiling that nobody was paying attention to or doing anything with. I said, we've got to get these into university archives. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmandel, and I am one of your hosts and producers. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. I am also a host and producer of Radio Survivor. And joining us via Skype from the beautiful city of San Francisco, we have Jennifer Waits. Hello. Greetings. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. On this show, we're going to uh, we're going to look back at uh, a conference you recently went to. I think they, they called it a symposium on college radio that happened at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and host station WTJU. And we're going to share one of the presentations about uh, radio archiving and preservation. I learned a lot uh, listening to it. So I think there's a lot that uh, folks can take away, whether they're involved in college radio, community radio, or sort of podcasting or any kind of media production, I yeah, think. we're really lucky to have the audio from that, so we're going to share it with the listeners later on in the program. And uh, well, you'll also, uh, we'll talk with you a little bit, Jennifer, about things you learned there and also at another radio conference you also recently attended with the University of California system radio stations. So we're, we're oh, It's that time of year that. again. I know. Yeah, busy <laughs> It's been it's been a really busy month. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Yes, and, and too many so radio conferences. We don't know how many will be able to fit into the podcast, but if <laughs> folks want to go to radiosurvivor.com, they can read many station tours of the stations that you were able to visit during your time there in the East Coast in the sort of Virginia area. Yes. I'm I'm doing my best to write up my station tours from the past six months before the students who I interviewed graduate from college. That's my goal. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, let me ask you a question. Why should a person who's familiar with one radio station care about what goes on at other radio stations around the country? Uh, Well, I mean, that was pretty much, that idea is pretty much what started me writing about college radio many years ago. um, Because I think a lot of us, just think about what's going on at our own radio station. And I've had experiences participating at more than four college radio stations. And so I learned... you've toured more than 100. Yeah. But even just from participating at four, I realized, wow, there are all these differences and it's really interesting. And I wish people knew more about what was going on at other types of stations. And that's before I started all of this crazy madcap touring. I had that thought in my head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what I've wanted all along is to increase people's understanding of what's going on at different types of stations. And I've seen firsthand when people meet up with people from other radio stations or or when they go on tours of other stations, I watch people's eyes light up. I watch them pulling things off the walls, asking questions, I think people are hungry to connect with others in college radio and and we tend to be very insular but then once you get out of out of your comfort zone and go somewhere else and meet other people you realize wow I need to do more of this it's very educational and fun and Paul 
why would a listener care? Well, I think that folks who listen likely are in community radio, college radio, or some kind of radio, or they're big enthusiasts. They're big supporters, or they're trying to make podcasts. There are no just passive radio listeners anymore <laughs> in America. I don't know, right? I mean, you know, we're in this stage in a world in which you know there aren't even passive Doctor Who fans in this yeah. world anymore, right? Everyone's sort of active. Well, there's so many choices. You're making a very active choice to turn on the radio now. Yeah, and you're it's and if you're same. listening to Radio Survivor, you're making a very active choice in that regard. It's not uh, being beamed to you yet on a radio station, but it may soon. Uh, I think the reason why. A listener would want to be interested is one, I mean, you learn about stations that you might not have heard of before and a very large percentage of these stations are online. So certainly it's an opportunity to learn about stations you might tune in from. And if you are at a station, you can take away lessons and maybe learn uh, how one station does things different than yours. Or uh, you might even think maybe that's a place I want to go or be because they have such amazing radio. And you learn that there are some cities out there, uh, small to large, that have enormous numbers of really cool radio stations, you might think to yourself, well, if I have the opportunity to go there, yeah. maybe I will. If that community has that station, what else are they doing right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I certainly, yeah. you know, hearing about WRIR uh, on the last podcast, um, which is in Richmond, Virginia, made me think, wow, that sounds like I really should uh, move Richmond up on my visit list. Yeah. And I, and I think people may be coming out of college who are starting to feel sad about you know, ending their experiences in college radio. I think, you know, hopefully some of these stories are eye-opening to them about the world of radio beyond, you know, there are many stations where you have to be a college student to participate, but there are many stations where you don't have to be a college student. So hopefully we've opened people's eyes about the fact that you continue can continue to do radio, whether it's college radio or community radio. You can continue to do that well past your undergraduate years too. Absolutely. And and for folks who are in community and college radio right now, one great thing, as you mentioned, is the ability to meet other people doing the same thing, to come together, often a conference-like setting. And our friends at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters want to make that a little bit easier for folks who are involved in community radio. And so they've given us a, a promo code, a discount code for you to use uh, to attend the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Conference, which is coming up July 17th through 19th in Denver, Colorado. And so if you sign up now, you can use the uh, promo code SURVIVOR50, SURVIVOR50, and you get $50 off on your conference fee. Uh, the NFCB has been around now uh over 40 years, and it is really the, the organization that tries to support and represent uh, community broadcasters from uh, around the country, around the U.S. And uh, certainly in since the second uh, low-power FM window in 2013, they've really been working hard to also be very accessible to new low-power FM community stations as we have this unprecedented expansion of Community Radio United States. The NFCB is trying to be there as a support institution right, as well. Because no one else is doing that work except for on the – on a much more individual and small, yeah, it's smaller really, really city tough. by city level. And at the uh, NFCB conference on the first day, July 17th, there will be an LPFM summit. So there'll be an opportunity for low-power FM stations in particular to come together and to discuss and get advice uh, about uh, 
specific issues that are facing low power FM stations. So that's uh, the National Federation of Community Broadcasters uh, Conference, which is happening July 17th through 19th in Denver. Their theme is A Place Called Community. Which should sounds like uh, a little bit like uh, yeah. It sounds like we're going to be talking about (laughs) that conference and you know previewing some of it and probably post viewing. That's not a word. uh, Talking about some of what happens there afterwards, since uh, that's right up our alley. Yeah, exactly. So go to nfcb.org to learn more about the conference where you can sign up, and if you use the discount code. Survivor five zero all together. Survivor five zero. Survivor five zero. You'll get fifty dollars off on that conference fee. Uh, thanks to our friends at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. It's nice to have friends. It's nice to have friends. And uh, before we uh, jump over to uh, the conference, the symposium on college radio, um, we have to talk a little bit about the FCC. It can't. It can't all be good feelings and happiness. <laughs> Uh, well, not not uh, with this FCC. The, the apparently. stars, the stars in my eyes, the little hearts that were floating around my head, Aww. talking about our friends, all just <laughs> collapsed to the ground. Because now we're going to talk about the reality of the Federal Communications Commission under President. Well, I can say that we will have a friend of the show on our right. next episode, uh, Professor Christopher Terry, who teaches at the University of Minnesota. He will be on to help us really dig in and break it down. What's going on here? But on short, uh, on April 26th, the new chairman, Ajit Pai, uh, unveiled his plans to dismantle network neutrality. Right. And we should mention, as Christopher Terry taught us uh, the last time we spoke with him about Ajit Pai, uh, that's the that's the obvious choice for a Republican president. It was not sort of some out-of-the-blue Trump pick. No, he was already on the commission. Yeah. Uh, but already sort of an avowed free marketeer. Uh, and critic of network neutrality uh, under the former uh, Tom Wheeler FCC. Tom Wheeler, of course, was appointed by President oh. Obama. Uh, now, network no longer, neutrality no longer sitting on the sidelines. Now he's in charge. Now he's in charge, and these network neutrality provisions, so-called open internet order, uh, was put in place just two years ago. So just two years ago, and now the new uh, chairman wants to overturn them. I remember at the time. Uh, being uh, pleasantly surprised because we weren't 100% sure what Obama's FCC was going to do about network neutrality from the get-go. And for it, I mean, it took six years for there to be a positive network neutrality step. From, yeah, and there, were, there were sort of half-steps that uh, didn't right. look so great yeah. before uh, there was a surprising result in 2015 when really strong protections uh, for consumers and anyone who uses the internet uh, put in place that prevent your internet service provider from prioritizing certain types of information on the internet over others. Right, network which, neutrality means basically all information should be treated equally. Uh, they shouldn't give net, Netflix priority over right. Hulu and they shouldn't give somebody's uh, you know, clear channel or iHeartRadio priority over your local community radio station. When I think about this issue, I always think about uh, I'm not 100% clear on all of the details of all the deals, but you know, I think AT&T has has a deal with certain content providers video and you know, they'll give you that super fast pipeline to HBO, but they won't give you the same access to to to, to YouTube necessarily. Yeah, to some other provider. Under, I mean, and, and under and in, under weak uh net neutrality rules. And of course, you know, Verizon now owns 
uh, Yahoo, right. which is a, a very large content provider and and search portal, et cetera, et cetera, we et cetera. Need a new 2017 uh, map oh, of, the, of where all the tentacles of all of the who, that's right who provides the pipes and who provides the the shiny content and where who what 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 are the deals this year? So I have to share though a couple of details uh, of Chairman Pai's speech given at the museum on April 26th. Because he really took some very sharp jabs at supporters of network neutrality. In fact, saying that people who support network neutrality, which has actually included companies like Google, um, he says that they, quote, have a longstanding goal of forcing the internet under the federal government's control, end quote. And then he went on and specifically singled out free press which is a media democracy organization that advocates for the public interest. And he did so by going after uh, one of the organization's co-founders, Professor Robert McChesney, hmm. who teaches at University of Illinois and um, is the author of many, many books about communications, democracy, and the political economy of, of uh, communication. So they, and, they did, and he did so by pulling some quotes from him uh, based upon an interview he gave to the Canadian socialist journal The Bullet and also from a 2007 op-ed he wrote on Venezuelan politics and media. Wow, so he's not, he's not going to be back on his heels waiting to get... No. He, he's, he's taking the fight to McChesney. Right. <laughs> Who right now is an emeritus board member. Uh, Free Press uh, put out a statement that said, well, I mean... Nobody from Free Press has been involved with any any of these quotes that uh, Professor McChesney said. Uh, they never republished any of these quotes. Basically, that he has very little to do with the organization at this point. Although he is one of the one of the founders. Um, they also noted that these quotes that. Uh, Chairman Pai used in his speech have been circulating for a while on right wing conspiracy sites. And most recently, uh, only about a week before the speech, were published on Breitbart. Wow. So Ajit Pai is now Donald Trump's He's FCC red baiting. chair. He's red baiting. He's no longer just <laughs> the bland, he could have been Jeb Bush's pick to head the FCC chair. He's he's in it. He's Trump's FCC yeah, chair. Yeah. I mean, basically, he's saying, well, uh, Bob Breitbart. McChesney is a socialist. And therefore, everyone who red supports uh, network neutrality must therefore want socialism as the ultimate outcome and you know everyone and therefore we should be scared right it is essentially uh red baiting interesting now this is fun i guess we shouldn't really go down this rabbit hole but what does alex jones think of neutrality (laughs) right because that guy is an indie media superstar who requires for now yeah but uh, I wish I hadn't brought up such a name. <laughs> yeah, I wish I, I hadn't conjured that. But, but I mean, right? I mean, I think that's a serious question, right? I mean, because uh, you know he is still not yet aligned necessarily with a major media company or a major ISP. It is. It is he utterly, net neutrality utterly plausible that 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 uh, another company's uh, traffic and access to uh, consumers could take priority over his. Absolutely, um, right. It's arguable that he needs it as much as as another organization yeah, or specifically because needs. he's doing television. That's why doing I brought video it online. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't do television. That's what he I does meant. Online uh, video. Internet television yeah. requires a certain amount of uh, free access. 
to those pipes. Otherwise, people will not be able to view your content without paying extra. Yeah. A few more highlights (laughs) because there are many, many highlights to this speech. Uh, Pai also said nothing about the internet was broken in 2015. Nothing about the law had changed and there wasn't a rash of internet service providers blocking customers from accessing the content applications or services of their choice. Uh, Free Press actually handed out in front of the museum a, a pamphlet documenting about a dozen instances of net neutrality violations prior to 2015. Right. Didn't Netflix have to pay through the nose f- to access? Yeah, I think I, I can't say yes or no. Um, and so my memory of 2015 is officially fuzzy. <laughs> I thought I knew everything. About- That's why I'm working off of notes. Yeah. That's why I'm not trying to remember all of this. I have them in front of me here. The um, examples are, are, are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll link to them in the show notes uh, because free press has compiled them uh, very nicely for us to read. So basically, you know, Chairman Pai's intention is to overturn the Title II protections, as they're called, which classifies internet services common carrier. So it means it gets regulated like a telephone provider. Right. Um, and they were put in place uh, two years ago pretty much at the strict instruction of the Federal Appeals Court. Basically, prior, the FCC had been in front of the Federal Appeals Court trying to defend its attempt at open internet rules, uh, which was sort of dodgy and trying – is sort of a, a Rube Goldberg mechanism. Yeah, they I would put point together. listeners back to uh, any interview with Christopher Terry. That yeah, we'll put that the in the FTC show notes as well. Because it, it gets – it, go, it gets as far into the weeds as anything can possibly get, but it's really interesting why we have to go that far out into the weeds to understand yeah. what's but going on. But basically it was a Rube Goldberg device. And and the court said, look, for this to be legit, for you to, to actually ensure an open internet, you simply have to classify the internet as a common carrier, which it had been earlier. It was changed from – away from being a common carrier by the FCC. And, and the court said, look, you do this and you can put in place open internet rules, which is exactly what the FCC eventually did in 2015. And uh, basically, Chairman Pai just wants to change it back. And he sort of implies that this isn't something which is broad support, network neutrality, um, which is sort of conveniently forgetting that in the in – the, uh, during the proposal phase and there were public comments. Uh, I remember 2015. I remember they this. They basically broke the FCC with 4 million public comments. Yeah. Because mostly because in support of network neutrality. Lots of internet giants, lots of websites really uh, fired up a lot of people to, to, to get involved. Yep. So that's uh, happening. The uh, proposed uh, rulemaking has already been released. Uh, there'll be more on that at the main meeting. It is out there, and I've not had a chance to read the proposed rulemaking yet. So, but I suspect um, Professor Christopher Terry wow. has the gauntlet or will has been and help thrown. us with this. It has been thrown. Furthermore, <laughs> it doesn't just stop there. Uh, Chairman Pai at the National Association of Broadcasters show uh, happening the same week. He announced a review of media ownership regulations to happen in May and made it very clear coming up on the chopping block is the cross ownership rule. This is a rule which limits uh, the ability primarily of one company from owning uh, a newspaper and television station in the same town. But more broadly applied, this is sort of help 
reduce concentration so that there are multiple voices in media in a given market. We're going to have to talk about the FCC more than once. Oh, more the, than in once. The coming, in the coming weeks on Radio Survivor. He also wants to get rid of something called the main studio rule. Oh, boy. Oh, interesting. So that doesn't have to be human beings. Well, no. So the main studio rule doesn't necessarily require that there be human beings. <laughs> it requires right. that you have a studio. A building. Okay. A studio in or near the community of license. So if you have a radio station, uh, a regular full-power radio station, you're supposed to have a studio. Now, you can sh- if, if there are multiple stations under the same ownership, they can share that studio. They can share that address. A broom closet with a microphone like in a puddle on the floor? Like I what? mean, indeed, but it has to be – I mean, the, the – the, the, the sort of threshold gets pretty low, but indeed, yes, the ability to go on air. There, there's, okay. I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but there's a definition for studio out there. Well, but yes, it can't just be yeah. a microphone on the floor. And I remember the whole KUSF brouhaha. It, you know, it was enough to have a microphone, you know, and like right. some sort of machine, you know, so that you could transmit something. Yes. Because, you know, a, the entire studio was ripped out at University of San Francisco but they claimed that they could still technically broadcast from there. And that know, was while they were uh, basically leasing improperly uh, their airwaves to another organization. But in order right. to sort of maintain the transmitter uh, operation there on campus, they had to sort of demonstrate that they had a legitimate studio. So, the, yeah, the threshold is right. low, but uh, Archie Pye wants to get rid of that. Con- and, and I don't think they were ever dinged for not having a main studio. No, so no, because they had it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because they had enough of a studio. But that's another topic. <laughs> that's another so, topic. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's just the my preview. threshold is very low. Yeah, the threshold is low, but there, it is a threshold, which uh, our new chairman so would like to lot, do away with. That's a lot coming down. There's a lot for us to pipe. pay attention to here. Yeah. So Christopher Terry will help us dig more into the details, more so than I was able to yeah, Why it matters so here. to people who love radio. Yes. So that is that will be coming up uh, next week and I'm sure many weeks thereafter. But let's uh, let's travel now to the beautiful college town of Charlottesville, Virginia, where, Jennifer, you had an opportunity to meet with some other like minded college radio people from not just uh, not just Virginia, but really all around the country. Uh, they're at the College Radio Symposium hosted by WTJU. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. And and so Jennifer, I mean, this is a one day symposium. And, and the thing I guess I want to ask you about it is that the, you go to other college radio events. There's the uh, college broadcasters incorporated has an annual conference that lasts several days that brings people together there. The university of California system has a uh, college radio conference and there's some other uh, similar events. Was there anything different about this or, or how does how does having this sort of one day symposium differ from another uh, college radio event? Yeah, I mean, so there are the obvious differences where, you know, it's one day. Uh, it's a smaller number of people than you would have at, say, the College Broadcasters Inc. conference, you know, which is multiple days, many tracks, you know, different sessions going on at once. Uh, but a symposium like this, everybody was in the same room. It's a smaller group. It's mostly people from Virginia who came and, um, there were panels, there were presentations and panels, but we were all watching the same thing at the same time. So we weren't breaking out into different rooms. So it's a much more intimate gathering. It's a much more regional 
gathering. And I mean, to me, I guess there were, there were people from eight different college radio stations in Virginia who were there. And, and I'm not sure if it was originally intended to be sort of a gathering, you know, I think ahead of time, I wasn't quite sure who was going to come. And, and I told people about it from, from different States too. But as it turned out, it was mostly people from college radio stations in Virginia. And, and by the end of the day, I think there was a nice coming together where people were getting to know people from other stations. And like I mentioned earlier, I think people are hungry for that. And, and at one point I think we joked about, I may have even joked from the panel, you know, from the uh, front of the room, you know, Oh, I think this is the first meeting of the Virginia college radio association. (laughs) And, and somebody, a student in the room who's um, a station manager at a college radio station in Virginia, I think at that point she set up a Virginia college radio face- Facebook group. <laughs> right. These millennials so with their phones. Let's not wait around. Yeah. Let's, let's get on, let's get on Love the idea it. this minute. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, it's like, you know, it wasn't my idea, but I'm, I'm always trying to encourage people to get to know people at nearby college radio stations and visit them and talk to them. So, I just felt it made me feel so happy, you know, to, to, to witness that moment and, and people, um, so the symposium was on St. Patrick's day and it was a few weeks before the Mac rock festival in, um, Harrisonburg, Virginia, which actually the acronym Mac rock originally stood for mid mid Atlantic college radio something like <laughs> conference. I think it was originally sort of a conference with music and it's over the years, it's transformed into more of a DIY music festival. Okay. Um, but it was originally started by the college radio station in Harrisonburg at James Madison university, WXJM. So I think maybe they used to have some more college radio type panels Um and now it's run by an independent organization, but it's still kind of connected with the radio station. You know, people are definitely, there are these cross connections. Um, but anyway, so anyway, that music festival is happening in a couple weeks. So, so students in particular at the symposium made a plan to meet up at Mac Rock also. Okay. So not only did they form this, you know, virtual online group, but they said, Hey, let's meet up in person in a few weeks at Mac Rock as well. So I thought, to me, that sort of stood out that, you know, I was there to see the birthing of of this um, networking, college mm-hmm. radio networking in Virginia, which which was super cool. Because there's something about IRL that, that is different than, than just doing things online and just having Facebook groups, although that helps to sort of uh, sow the connections, I think, a little bit more. And, and I understand this particular event was free, right? Uh, so for anyone who wanted to attend, they just could. Yeah. And it was, uh, I'm going to give the formal title of it. It was called College Radio Then, Now, and Next. And it was hosted by WTJU. It was a free all-day event uh, with panels and presentations. And then the afternoon was more interactive, um, so a lot more audience participation. Uh, Right after lunch, uh, they also shared tidbits from some college radio documentaries which was cool, including uh, a trailer for 
a documentary that's in production right now about college radio. And you could see me in the background in part of it at um, a KUSF protest. <laughs> so do we have any more information about that we can put uh, in our show notes? Oh, about that documentary? Yeah. Um, yeah, I can find I can find a link for that. They I'm sure people cut, would want to see that when it comes yeah, out. They, they, apparently they cut a brand new promotional piece just for the conference. So oh, cool. I, I'd seen a, a promo reel previously, but this one had some additional material in it. Some of it, some of which was quite chilling. They had some footage from, um, this, this big meeting at university of San Francisco that I was in the audience for, and I hadn't seen footage of it before. So it, it took me back and I actually presented. What kind of meeting right, is this? Why was it chilling? Oh, it was, uh, it was when we, um, it was after they announced that KUSF, um, well, it was after they they came in and basically said, you know, we're shutting down the station and you guys have to leave. This and, is the administration of the right. University of San Francisco. Yeah, and so then um, they had a meeting oh, within a day or two in a very large venue on campus, um, and it was a meeting with Father Prevet, who I guess his official role was president of USF at the time, and. And so he basically was doing a Q&A, which mm. is kind of amazing to think about. Um, he did a Q&A with this humongous crowd of angry people. Right, because we don't um, want to get too far into, the, into that <laughs> origin story of, of, your, uh, of some of your uh, college radio. Right, but, but, I just wanted to uh, but, kind but, of set the scene there but we're talking what, about what a, people saw. A radio station that was extremely well-liked by a community of people that uh, – was ripped from the airwaves uh, secretly and unceremoniously, and then there was a long and uh, interesting struggle. Yeah. Over yes, that a very long struggle. But so this meeting was um, was pretty intense. Um, and, and I got and to there ask was a footage in, in the, in, and so there's footage in the documentary then. Neat. Yeah. That's so apparently, out. I think somebody might have filmed the whole thing. <laughs> we should talk about that documentary. Yes. Again yes. On a, when on when it comes out. Yeah. When it's yeah. when it's ready to come out. So at the um, at the symposium, Jennifer. You know, you've been to a lot of these events. You've been to a lot of probably more college radio conferences than just about anyone out there. Um, Was there anything that stood out as different? Is there anything you learned in particular? You know, I mean, I would hope that you keep going to these things uh, because uh, on top of meeting lots of interesting people and celebrating college radio, you, you take something away. Is there anything you learned this time around that maybe you didn't know before? Well, there's always, I mean, for me, it's always, um, these little tidbits. So there were a lot of opportunities where people were sharing ideas and anecdotes and, and so people were sharing things like fundraising ideas and WTJU did a soup contest called soup. There it is, (laughs) you know, so like random stuff like that, like, Oh, well, so, so, could, so talk about this. So, I mean, so uh, a soup contest. Yeah, I know. Yeah explain, yeah. explain why that's not a dumb idea for a college radio station to do. I, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of um, organizations are trying to think of fun ways to raise money and also build community. So that's an example of that. And, and I don't remember every detail about what but, they but did. But it's sort of like um, a chili cook-off, only instead of chili, it's soup. It's soup. People are entering yeah. their soup, and it's getting judged, and eventually someone gets declared uh, king or queen soup. Yeah. And I think they invited 
if my, if memory serves me, I think they invited local restaurants. Ah, there um, you go. Who actually had to charge an admission fee for their, you know, soup. So that was pretty crafty. Um, so that's part of the fundraising right. uh, aspect of it. So it, you know, WTJU does a lot of different sort of goofy things. Um, and they have a new camper that's going to be, um, sort of a mobile recording studio. Yeah, it's very shiny. But it reminds me of like the whole idea of the station van, which I just, I don't know. I always have a soft spot for stations that have their own vehicle that drives around. Maybe it goes back to this sort of 70s thing where you imagine the station van driving around and being all groovy, like, you know. Showing up at the car dealership or the, uh, you know, to do the the giveaway on on a Saturday afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, or maybe they see, you know, their bumper sticker on your car and they drive up and give you something, you know, who knows. Hmm. It has all of this sort of mystery and allure to it. So, you know, it's, to me, it's fun to go to conferences and just hear about these different innovative ideas. Um, Students... And and for me, some stuff blends together because I went to visit a lot of radio stations. Some were before the conference and some were after. So I met some folks and then saw them again at the conference and vice versa. So I was kind of building some of these connections and learning about stations all throughout the few days that I was in Virginia. Um, And there was a student at WXJM in Harrisonburg who was talking about the safer spaces training that she was involved with. That's something she was really passionate about, like making sure that that shows are comfortable spaces for a variety of people, no matter what your gender is. So the actual radio show itself. Um, And she's talking more about live shows. Live shows. Okay. Okay. And it's the DIY do it yourself music scene is a huge deal in Harrisonburg and actually in a bunch of these towns that I visited Um, so a lot of these places have big house show scenes where, you know, you're, you're putting on small music performances, you know, just in somebody's living room or in a basement somewhere. So I was hearing a lot about that throughout the trip. And so, so, and these are, because these are very independent, uh, productions, they don't have the support that you would have say in a public venue, whether it's uh, someplace on campus where ostensibly there's probably already a code of conduct in addition to security and things like that, or maybe at a, uh, at a performance venue, whether it's a bar or cafe, coffee shop or theater, where again, you would, you, you might have a code of conduct that already exists in addition to, uh, you know, some degree of security, the ability to, to make sure that, that, that uh, there's a way to deal with infractions or people who create an unsafe environment. So what, yeah. so, so kind of there, uh, what's going on here is is students ostensibly uh, working together amongst themselves to create an environment that's sort of conducive to to anyone who comes, and it, in that way is safe in a lot of different. And I'm sure there's a lot of different meanings behind that, but also for the so that they can have these uh, underground, if you will, uh, or DIY sorts of performances so that that to see a show or for an artist to perform, they don't necessarily have to have all the additional um, bureaucracy and resources necessary to throw a show at an, at a more public venue. Is that sort right. of right? Yeah. And, you know, making everybody feel welcome, knowing how to recognize if maybe 
some issue is starting to bubble up and, you know, how do you deal if you notice that somebody at a show is starting to get angry or violent and how do you deescalate that? Hmm. Um, you know, so a lot of, a lot of things like that. And then it also extends to things to think about when you're booking shows. Um, so, you know, she was talking about how she, I think she's only booking queer or femme artists in her terminology. So, thinking about how our shows typically traditionally booked in the DIY scene and does it tend to be mostly bands that are all men? Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how do you make that environment more inclusive? So, and people of color too. So it's, and this is all imp- sort of coincident with radio because uh, the, this sort of um, do it yourself shows environment and concert environment is a lot of the same people are involved. How is what, what, what is the formal connection to radio or the informal uh, connection to radio then? I think in a lot of these, in a lot of these places, especially small towns, it's all part of the same ecosystem. So the people at the radio station are the people who are involved with the local um, house show scene and with going out to see music. And there are a lot of um, intersections between these communities and that was certainly the case when I was doing college radio in Bowling Green, Ohio. It was, you know, very tight knit scene between people in local bands, people at the radio station, and the local venues and house shows. So that's yeah, I think also that's probably another- true of a lot of community stations in general. Uh, yeah. You know, and and the stations themselves are often a venue, right? And, right. And and if you're a college station, you might you know be relying to some extent on on the uh, the college or university to provide some of that code of conduct, some of that sort of uh, safety, if you will. But often if you're a community radio station, I mean, it's probably, you know, it's just a place, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not necessarily any more uh, uh, institutionalized than, than someone's house. Right. Um, and so the, some of these conversations also came up when I went to the UCRN conference, which was hmm. um, a few weeks later, and that's the University of California Radio Network. Yeah, and it was held at a non-UC school. It was held at KXLU at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Hmm. Um, And so some of those same conversations were happening there, and there was a great panel discussion about feminism and intersectionality. So I I think for many of us who've been involved with college radio for a long time, there there's the stereotype that it's a male dominated space, a white male dominated space. Mm-hmm. And, and that is certainly in my time in college radio, it's been getting more diverse. And even when I was in college radio in the eighties, um, our station manager was a woman. So it's not like it was a completely male space back then. But I think for many of us who started in college radio back then as women, we were definitely in the minority and people of color were definitely in the minority at college radio stations. And as I go out and about, you know, I, I definitely see that in 2017 college radio is more diverse than it used to be, but it's still, it's still not, um, it's, it's still not a place that always feels welcoming to everybody. So, it, it's been great at both of these conferences to hear these conversations coming up um, where college radio stations are being reflective about that. How do we make our station feel more welcoming? 
you know, because it's connected, it's connected with the local music scene. Um, and that's why I think, you know, the conversations about safer shows that sort of extends to things that are going on in radio stations also. So at, um, at the UCRN conference, we talked a little bit about, um, some female DJs and things that they encountered when people called in on their shows and Mm. said things that were really horrific and Mm -hmm. sexist. Um, so these dynamics, these negative dynamics are still happening, which is really sad, but it's, it's good that these, it's good that there was an entire panel talking about that. And hopefully it opens some people's eyes about, um, you know, we still have a long ways to go, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unfortunately with, um, sexism and racism and homophobia, even in a place like Los Angeles, where you would think um, those things would be less of an issue. Right. You know, it's interesting to me to hear this. And, and so I'm heartened on the one hand that that these conferences are a space for these conf- these conversations, whether it's formally in, in terms of panels or, or workshops or informally uh, the, that people are coming together to have these conversations. And I reflect on it a bit as a, you know, white, cisgendered, middle-class, middle-aged male who did college radio, did community radio, and how it's easy for me to forget those conversations need to be had and easy to not fully acknowledge these very negative experiences that are still happening, that, 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 that women and, and people of color and, and queer people are, are having in these places right. that, that you think of that, that I, it's easy for me to think of as accepting and safe in quotes sure. that maybe aren't as well, safe and, and accepting as I think they are. Something that Jennifer clued me into was uh, I don't quite remember which specific station it was, although I think it might have been in California. Um, just the idea that that a lot of people who aren't uh, the white male uh, students – just don't see college radio as 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 their thing. Mm-hmm. It's a club that they're not going to join because ugh, it's just not. Yeah, it's not. Why would they? Why would they bang their heads against all of those walls when there's other ways to spend their time? And for that not to, for that not to be um, already gone, <laughs> for that concept to still exist that that college radio is not for everybody, but just for certain people. Um, there's work. I know it's horrible and yeah. There's definitely work to do, and I probably talked about this last year uh, when I went to this, uh, the UCRN conference at KSPC at Pomona College. Yeah, that's um, right. It was a zine. Yeah, we definitely had a lot of conversations about it at that conference, and the station was specifically, they did a survey, they did a zine, they were doing work to mm. figure out how do we make KSPC more welcoming to all students. And it was tied in with things that were going on on campus, um, some negative in, in, um, negative incidents on campus. So it's it's heartening and impressive to me when stations realize Oh wow, we're part of the problem too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think this it sounds like something we should explore more here uh on the podcast and at radiosurvivor.com, I think, because it's easy to get overly focused on operations and you know, and and it's important, right, to get down on sort of nuts and bolts operations and fundraising, and those are all very important. But uh 
it's very important as well that uh, you know college radio and community radio serve everyone in the community <laughs> and not just uh, certain people of privilege. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, and I would imagine it at conferences like NFCB, they're talking about these same these same things. So um, I'm glad that at these very small conferences I went to it was a part of the conference and you would certainly hope at a larger conference, you might even have a handful or more sessions talking about um, these sorts of issues. I think here's the time on the, on the program where we open the door to make, to make it known that if you are out there listening and you know of a solution conversation or uh, the opposite of that, a problem or a lack of such a thing, uh, reach out to us. If you know who we should be talking to, uh, to on the podcast about this, uh, our our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. It's funny how that always leaves my mind right when I need it. <laughs> That's podcast why I'm here. <laughs> at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, Jennifer, uh, it's an interesting takeaway. I mean, and that, that, that sort of the, how you synthesized kind of these conversations happening uh, in and around college radio and, and, and on both coasts, right? And in two sort of different environments, you know, not radically different, but but in, in, on the one hand, uh, in kind of uh, uh, a Virginia college town environment, you know, these are smaller cities, uh, places like Charlottesburg or uh, uh, Charlottesville, Charlottesville or Harrisonburg. I was getting them uh, combined in my head, uh, along with places like Los Angeles. Right. Uh, I know. It's well, in uh, both cases, in both cases, I met very inspiring students who are leading the charge on these issues. That's so, great. um, I don't know. I mean, you were asking earlier why I travel to these things and, um, and it's amazing. I mean, I come back from these trips so inspired by the people that I meet and it's kind of unbelievable, you know, especially some of these station managers who are students and have 10 bazillion other things going on in their mm-hmm. lives and they're still tackling, in addition to running a station, they're tackling really important issues, you know, important issues that go way beyond the station where they're working. Mm-hmm. So, so it's inspiring. So I'm, I'm glad that we talked about that. That's wonderful. And we're going to share a little bit of audio on, on a different topic uh, presented by Laura Schnicker. Uh, tell us who Laura Schnicker is. We've heard this name before on the podcast, Jennifer. Oh, yes. Um, Laura and I are the co-chairs of the College Community and Educational Radio Caucus of the Radio Preservation Task Force. So both very passionate about college radio history and preservation. And and I forget all of Laura's amazing titles, but she's <laughs> at she's at University of Maryland and she is a volunteer at WMUC, the college radio station there. And she's also an archivist. Um, and, and, an, and, um, so she's an archivist that works at University of Maryland. And so those two worlds came together when she was noticing all this amazing stuff at WMUC. So she ended up creating an archive, an official archive for WMUC, put together an amazing exhibit, history exhibit about the station. And she did, um, she created a symposium also that she brought me out to speak at a few years ago. So she's an amazing 
she's an amazing person, an amazing resource because she's passionate about college radio, but she has all of the knowledge and the tools to be able to talk to people about how do you preserve your history and, you know, down to the nitty gritty of details about, you know, archiving, um, different types of audio and storage. So she gave a really great, uh, very understandable for us lay folks, um, very understandable presentation about what do you do to archive your station's history. Wow. I'm excited. I'm so excited. We're going to play that for the listeners. We want to thank Nathan Moore, who's a general manager at WTJU that hosted the conference for, for making the audio of, of uh, this presentation available to us. Let's jump in and hear Laura Schnicker's presentation at the College Radio Symposium hosted by WTJU at the University of Virginia. How many of you want to save college radio history? Yes. All right. You're going to love this. Um, Since everybody kind of shared there how I got into college radio story, I'll just start by saying I didn't get into it until graduate school. I was already in my late 20s. I was at Tufts University, actually, at WMFO, um, MoFo Radio. And I wanted to emulate my idol, who is a jazz DJ in Michigan. I did my undergrad at University of Michigan. And I got to the station. I went to a meeting. um, And they were going around asking, what did everybody want to program? And people were saying, indie. I'm going to do indie. Oh, I want to do indie music, too. And I wondered, why is everyone into Indian music? (laughs) I had never heard of indie. And then I started, and I realized as I was looking through the record collection that Indie meant independent labels like Thrill Jockey and Kill Rock Stars and all these labels I'd never heard of and that there was so much more music than um, you really ever hear on commercial radio. So that was kind of my gateway into both independence in American popular music as well as college radio. So I've been um, a freeform DJ since 2003 um, and I've been at WMUC now for 12 years. Let us begin. So I'm going to talk about archiving and preserving college radio. And I just want to make a distinction in terms here that by archiving, I mean storing um, materials. Both are about preservation, but archiving really refers to um, storing items as is. So saving what you find, um, putting it on a shelf in acid-free folders in a box. um, And that is often static and seen as kind of the final record. When I talk about preservation, I mean preserving an item in order that people can continually access the content. So my main concern with preservation is, of course, audiovisual materials, because so much of what we have are on outdated legacy formats that are pretty much useless unless you can play it back and um, migrate that content to a current format that's going to allow people to be able to listen to it. So I'm going to talk today about how I started the WMUC collection and university archives and then the exhibit that I did um, as a result of finding all of this great history and getting the university support. And then I'll talk about some of the preservation work that we've done for the AV materials. Feel free to ask questions anytime. By the way, um, going back really quick, this shelf that you see pictured here, um, all of those 10-inch reel-to-reel tapes came from WMUC, and all of the ones you see on the shelf there have been digitized, I'm very proud to say. 
So WMUC, like many of your college radio stations, is a number of things. It is community-oriented. Um, Third Rail Radio, which we have a, a documentary about later, um, is our oldest um, continuously running program. It started in 1996. Um, every Sunday or so, from 6 to 9, they feature live local bands. Um, it's the voice of the university. Um, this photograph and article from the campus newspaper, Diamondback, um, is from the mid-1970s when they launched the very first program by and for African-American students. It was called Yesternow. Um, it's an outlet for student creativity, of course. This guy was a DJ in the late 1970s, early 80s. He called himself Captain Magenta. Um, a career stepping stone. So many of our alumni have gone on into careers in professional broadcasting. And WMUC has a really robust sports department. All of the gentlemen pictured here, and this article is from the Diamondback um, early 2000s, they all went on to professional careers as sports journalists, um, working for ESPN and CBS, stuff like that. And of course, we've been a haven for alternative music for decades. Um, the station got its FM license in 1979. Before that, it had been a carrier current station, which launched in 1948. Um, but in the early 80s, they decided to go entirely freeform. And so this became a really important outlet for local punk bands, as Nick described. No other stations in the Washington, D.C. area would play these bands, but WMUC would, even though it's only a 10-watt station. Um, it had a very loyal local following. And it's still an important stepping stone for local bands um, who come and play third rail. So my project started in spring of 2008. I was interviewing the WMUC staff for my dissertation, and I was talking to the general manager, and he had something really interesting on his desk that I've already hinted at as we were getting the audio set up. Um, but I was talking to him, and I noticed that he had this um, real tape box that said, Don McLean interview 1971. I said, Scott, what's the story on that? Is that really what's on the tape? And he said, yeah, actually it is, and that's why I'm keeping it in my office, because I'm kind of watching over it. I said, well, let me digitize this um, back in my office where I worked at the library, um, because no one can hear this. You know, the way it is now, we need to have a digital copy. So I took it back to my office, I digitized it, and this is what I heard. Our guest this afternoon in the studio, in case you've just tuned in, is Don McLean, recording artist for Media Art Records. His album is Tapestry. He's appearing tonight with Stefan between 7, 7 and 10, two shows tonight. You're appearing in the area also tomorrow night, I understand. That's right, the uh, Baltimore campus of the university in a, in a solo concert. About ten years ago, when Buddy Holly died, he was my idol. He's the only idol I ever had. I start off with that. And this is a rather long song, so I better light up. Long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. 
I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So bye bye, Miss American Pie. I drove my Chevy to the levee. But the so I did a little bit of research and realized that this interview happened two months before this song was released as a single and there were some variations in this version um, that didn't make it to the event eventual commercial uh, version that we all heard so i was really excited about this i said scott how many more of these are there he said well i'll show you the back room and he took me into this musty back room that was poorly ventilated and it had stacks um, about 1800 audio reels just stacked to the ceiling that nobody was paying attention to or doing anything with. I said, we've got to get these into university archives. Um, so I talked to our university archivist, her name is Ann Turcos, and she was absolutely amenable to creating a WMUC collection in university archives. Because WMUC is a student organization, it absolutely belongs in university archives. It's part of the history of the university. So she gave me the resources to do it. She gave me a student assistant who helped me bring over both the printed and the audio materials from the station, called the um, collection officially the records of WMUC, and it was fully accessioned in 2013. So this is what we found. We brought over two large boxes of printed materials that contained what you'd expect to find in a college station. Newsletters, correspondences, flyers, zines, programs, playlists. Um, all of them really a distinct snapshot of the station's history. Starting in 1948, that was the oldest document that we found, and it was a proposal that had been written by the students that wanted to launch the station um, to the university regents. Um, and then for the audio, among the 1800 items, we had the open reel audio tapes, as well as ADATs, cartridges, VHS, mini disc cassettes, and CDRs. So quite a lot of formats spanning um, almost five decades of the station's history. So this was before we had a reformatting center, which we now have, and so it was just me in this little room trying to digitize these tapes um, as fast as I could. And what I realized was there was so much um, variety in content. I had always assumed WMUC specialized in music programming, but I discovered that students over the, the decades had done news, they had done dramas, people had done radio plays, some of them were trying to emulate NPR, so they had um, news and cultural programming. Lots of famous people did station IDs. Um, of course, PSAs, ad spots, because at one time the station did sell advertising. Promos, interviews, also with famous people, as you just heard, um, and in-studio performances. So eventually we created this finding aid, which means the collection is discoverable online. So if you search our database, which is called Archives UM, you can look at the WMUC collection, see what we have, and come into our reading room and look at it. Or if you're from very far away, we can digitize um, the printed or the audio materials on demand. So after we discovered all of this, I was really excited about sharing it with people. And so I launched the idea of doing a WMUC exhibit. And I got um, a lot of enthusiasm, not just from Ann Turcos, but from everybody um, in special collections and university archives. I said, I want to tell the history of WMUC. We think the station is coming up on its 75th anniversary. That turned out not to be true. 
um, further research into university archives showed us it was actually 65th anniversary, so we were off by 10 years. Um, I also wanted to show people how we were preserving these materials because I think they're so important. And also um, encourage people to continue to support college radio. This was around the time that WMUC lost a ton of funding from the Student Government Association because the SGA was struggling to fund over 800 student organizations. And they're going to respond to the ones that have um, the most well thought out and clearest budgets. And that year, WMUC just didn't. So they, they lost almost three quarters of their funding. So we wanted to launch this as an initiative to help bring awareness to that and do some fundraising as well. So the exhibit opened in the fall of 2013 um, in our exhibit gallery. And it was designed to be interactive. So we had kind of a mock studio in there with a record player. We had a listening station where we had audio clips from um, all of those archives and a big bulletin board that had all these homemade flyers that students had done over the years for their shows. We also have an online version of this, which you can visit. Um, it's up in perpetuity, I'm happy to say. Um, and also interactive. So there you can find the audio clips, you can find the photos, and most of the stuff that was in the exhibit had been scanned um, or digitized so that you can look at it now online. So my favorite part, as you may have guessed, of this whole project was the audio. I think that's where the most interesting content of the station's history can be found. So I put together a little montage. I'm very happy we got the audio up and running. This starts with the most famous station ID we ever got. Hello, this is John Lennon of the Beatles for the Pops and Pops and the WMUC in College Park. Get listening, kids. WMUC presents the Day Report, a program of whatever is relevant to the student. From College Park, this is WMUC. Good morning to you, College Park. This is a limited edition of the Jones Show for a June 30th, 1970 Tuesday morning. The Southern Rattle. I'm Ann Latitty. I'm Chip Powderly for WMUC News. I'm Valerie Matthews reporting for WMUC News. This is Karen Beam, WMUC News. I'm Andy Monaco for WMUC News. From Lot 4 to the Denton community, WMUC had the coverage of the SGA presidential elections. Be here for the runoffs Wednesday, November 28th. WMUC, we were there, we were right, and we were first. This is Alexa Champion, host of Body Talk, a weekly half-hour program that focuses on health, fitness, and nutrition. Join me every Sunday at 6 p.m. for Body Talk on 88.1 FM and 65 AM WMUC, College Park. This is The Dusters on 3rd Rail Radio, number 21, WMUC-FM, Freeform 88. What does that mean? No format? Huh? Yeah, I'm singing sort of freeform. Matt, as we said, Maryland going for that national championship. And, of course, a special night here now just 20 minutes away. And uh, for us to be here and having been here throughout this NCAA tournament, you feel something special in the air tonight. Do you think Maryland's going to pull this one out? Maryland did pull it out, by the way. They won the championship that year. Um, so corollary to this, of course, we did a lot of promotion, um, which was important, of course, because we were trying to raise money on behalf of the station as well as our initiative to preserve it. Um, so 
the first, of course, was this the campus newspaper, the Diamondback, which is actually right across the hall from WMUC in uh, South Campus Dining Hall. Um, so they were the first to to write an article about what we were trying to do with the exhibit. Um, they also did a story uh, later on after the exhibit had opened, just kind of describing it for the campus community. Um, and this showed up in uh, various blogs hosted by the university. Um, UMD Right Now um, was one, I think, for the libraries. Um, Facebook was great. We used Facebook not just to promote the exhibit, but to do some crowdsourcing. There is a Facebook alumni group that has over 300 members that um, are actually living all over the world now. And so they were an invaluable resource when it came to gathering additional materials and also identifying them. Because we had so many photos um, and flyers and things like that that we didn't really know where they were from or who created them or what their era was. So I would post these on Facebook and say, who is this in this photo? And people would chime in and give me the answers. Um, so they've been great and they're still very active. Um, we used Twitter. Of course, Twitter was just just getting started um, around this time. Um, Terrapin Tales um, is another uh, blog that um, describes some of the more interesting artifacts in university archives. And then, of course, we had uh, a symposium a few years ago. Jennifer was my keynote speaker for that. Speaking of Jennifer, she wrote a lovely article about it in Radio Survivor. Um, after she, I think it was after the symposium and she had visited the exhibit. One of my favorite though um, came out a little bit after the exhibit closed in Terrapin Tales. Uh, they wrote a story, Riots with a Side of American Pie. Um, I don't know if you caught on the recording of Don McLean, he was opening for Steppenwolf that night on campus. And there were, they called them riots, I don't know how violent it got, but this was in 1971, so it was like a year after Kent State. And there was a lot of tension between the administration and the students. So students were unhappy that um, ticket prices were so high, they were $6. <laughs> um, but they, there was a police presence there to maintain order and that just kind of escalated the tension. Um, but people didn't realize this little known singer, Don McLean, was going to be opening for Steppenwolf. Um, and so they described that whole thing in this article, and I was just really happy to see that. This is a great way to use the university's history to, um, to bring, you know, issues like this that are still obviously very relevant um, to the awareness of the campus community. So if you want to do the same thing, and archive your station. Here's some hints on how to get started. Um, first, I recommend centralizing communication among the current students at the station as well as your station alumni, either through Facebook or Twitter, whatever platform is most useful to you. And just get people excited about it. It was not hard to, um, to incite alumni to tell their stories because a lot of them say the same thing that have been set up here already. They almost flunked out of college because they spent so much time at the radio station or they were so focused on um, becoming good broadcasters that they kind of let their, their majors slip a little bit. But all of them were so passionate about it at the time that they were very happy to then contribute to remembering its history. Um, so then gather the materials. You want to definitely get them, whatever they are, paper or audio, get them out of 
attics and basements. Those are the worst possible conditions to store anything that you want to save um, because of the high moisture content in the air and the lack of climate control. So if you can, gather those and get them in a safe place um, as sort of a staging area. And then contact your college or university archivist. Every college has a university archives. And this is really where station histories belong. So if you get in touch with the archivist and say, we want to preserve the history of this campus radio station, more than likely, if they're a good archivist, they will say yes and do what they can to help you. It helps to celebrate an anniversary or a station milestone. Um, that's another way to get people really excited. It really builds nostalgia if you point out that your station's been around for, say, 50 years. People go, wow, that's a long time. Think of everyone who came before me. Um, and it helps build excitement, and it encourages people to contribute either materials or funding or their time. So those are some really practical ways that you can start saving um, the histories of your college stations. Now the second part, and I'll go through this fairly quickly, um, this, this is about the preservation work we've done specifically with audio, and some of this gets fairly sophisticated. And this part of the presentation was actually done by my colleague, Eric Cartier, who oversees our Digital Conversion and Media Reformatting Center. Uh, it gets fairly technical, and I'm going to kind of breeze past that, um, because I'm not completely sure what all everything means, but I can tell you um, basically what, what we try to do, and there are several steps. So um, the first is just to identify formats, which can be tricky. Um, come up with a workflow. We do collaborate with other departments in order to do this, and then to build digital collections, and there are issues inherent in that as well. So the formats we have are referred to as legacy formats, and most of them are obsolete. Um, worse than that, the playback equipment is becoming obsolete. So it's really expensive to maintain reel-to-reel -reel machines, and they're not necessarily making parts anymore for these machines, and they wear out after a while. So um, procuring this kind of equipment is a real challenge. And everything's deteriorating. There is no such thing as a stable audio format. And we're not even really sure which ones are going to endure. So, of course, more than anything else, we had quarter-inch open reel audio tapes. Generally, these were preserved surprisingly well, given their crappy storage conditions at the station. Audio cassettes, I think we're all familiar with audio cassettes. Yes, good, okay. You never know with the younger audience. Um, I should point out too that one of the challenges with preserving materials from a college station is they're not professionally maintained. So a lot of these don't have anything written on them other than maybe like a person's first name or a band name. And that can present some challenges because you've got to listen to it in order to ascertain what's on it. And in listening to it, you're wearing it down even further. So if you can simultaneously digitize it while you listen to it, that's probably ideal. Cartridges. How many of you have come across cartridges? Stations. Okay, good. Um, yeah, we've got boxes and boxes of these, and all the alumni swear that like the best station IDs and the most famous drops are all on these carts, and I believe them. 
Um, and we actually have four cart machines, but our preservationists are too scared to use them because they're actually in such good shape that they're afraid they're gonna play the carts too fast and like destroy the tapes. So they've put these aside for now. Um, digital audio tapes, we have a lot of these. These are one of the lesser stable formats. Um, so if you have DATs, and don't call them DAT tapes, that's redundant, it drives me nuts. Um, if you have DATs, best migrate them as soon as possible if you can. And then we have Alesis digital audio tapes. Um, they look like VHS tapes, but they are in fact audio only. These preserved fairly well. Mini discs, a lot of interviews done on mini discs. In fact, um, one surface that was an interview with Elliot Smith from the late 90s, it was one of the last interviews he did before he passed away. Fortunately, it had been migrated um, because these are not in the best shape. And then the CDs, this has been really frustrating because these are actually deteriorating at a faster rate than anything else. They have abandoned, or I should say suspended work on the audio reels and um, completely turned all their efforts over to migrating the content from these CDs, which are from the late 90s, early 2000s. Because of bit rot, the risk for content loss is higher than just about any format that we have. And the thing about a CD is you can't tell in looking at it if it's deteriorated or not. In some cases, there might be flaking or scratching, but you could lose everything on a CD and just by looking at it, you'd have no idea that the content was gone. Unlike magnetic tape where you can actually see signs of degradation. So we're in sort of emergency mode with the CDs right now. So, um, and I'll, again, I'll go through this fairly quickly because this gets somewhat sophisticated, but we have um, set out a digitization workflow that involves four different units. We've got the unit I work in, Special Collections and University Archives, um, and we're primarily responsible for selection. That is, we decide what gets priority when it comes to preservation. And I always consult with them to ask, you know, which formats are at highest risk. So they said, well, CDs. See, I didn't know that. Um, so then I said, all right, then you definitely want to do all the third rail CDs first because those are really, really important. Um, then they go to metadata services department where they enter into a very fancy spreadsheet a full description of not only the content but of the physical formats um, of each item. Then they go to DCMR, Digital Conversion Media Reformatting Center, where they actually do the digitization. And last, they go into Digital Programs and Initiatives, who does the preservation work. And this is where it gets kind of nebulous for me. Um, they have so many different backup systems, which is great. I can't really describe them all to you. One of them is actually analog. If Eric were here, he'd be able to tell you about that. Um, but they, they do take um, everything that they digitize very seriously and, and carefully preserve it. Um, because again, we really have no idea what is going to fail first, and we want to save this content as best we can. So there's our really fancy um, machine. We actually had a, a two-year contract um, post-master's position for this. Um, this person, his name was Henry Borchers, came in and, and took two years to set up this entire thing. So it's got a reel-to-reel -reel playback, a cassette, um, DAT, you can see the cart machines in the bottom left that are still unused because they're afraid of them. 
Um, but all this is hooked up to a fancy digital audio workstation where they can monitor all of the audio levels um, and make sure they get really good preservation copies. Um, right now they're using Adobe Audition, yep. Yeah, which I use as well, just like I, I used Audition to edit the, uh, the montage I played a little while ago. This was Eric's favorite slide. Get it? Play back in real time. Real time, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell him that everybody groaned. Um, and then, so just to share with you, like, the kinds of um, spreadsheets that Eric lives in, um, this shows every, every audio item gets its own unique identification number that corresponds to its shelf number. Um, so they keep really careful track of those. And then the metadata spreadsheet, this is only a very small section of that. They put so much information in there, um, probably more than they need. But there again, um, you never know what's going to crap out first and how you're going to be able to recover it. So you want to document it as thoroughly as possible. From the public end, this is what you see when you search our digital collections. These, this is like a typical list of results. Um, so then you can click on any one of these links and then this is what an individual record looks like. And this is great. This is from Third Rail, October 7th, 2000. You get the metadata there on the right and then you can stream the audio on the left. Now there are copyright concerns, of course, um, for Performances that have original songs, uh, we have to be very careful about this. So if we can't stream it for legal reasons, it'll just come up um, instead of um, the play um, icon there, it'll just say you must be on campus to stream this or contact the curator, that's me, to get a research copy of this file. So our next phases as we move forward, um, in terms of the station, we're going to keep uh, digitizing third rail they're almost done, and then they'll go back to the, the open reel tapes. Um, we're moving now to a new um, content management system called Archive Space. That's been a lot of work. And what I'm trying to do, and what I encourage all of you to do, is to develop a process to preserve what you're doing right now. It's just as important as what they were doing 50 years ago. I'm guessing it's going to be born digital content if you're streaming your shows online. Um, hopefully you're preserving them. At WMUC, we can go in and save our shows. They are archived for one week and then they're replaced by the next show that you do. So what I'm trying to do is um, develop a way to just kind of capture once a semester a week's worth of programs and store them on um, a hard drive, a portable hard drive. Um, it's, it would take way too much space to try to store everything on an ongoing basis. So if we could do it like a few times a year, um, I think that'd be better than nothing. Um, for college radio in general, we want to continue to build our network of archivists, scholars, and the community because we can all work together to help one another to spread the gospel of archiving college radio as I'm doing here today um, and to continue to work with the Radio Preservation Task Force to centralize our resources um, so that we can help you offer best practices, maybe help you find funding um, so that you can do some of the digitization work that we've done. Um, and just very last, I want to illustrate two success stories that resulted from our efforts at Maryland. The first was WPRB um, at Princeton. And this was created by Mike Lupica, who is the faculty advisor to WPRB. 
And he was so inspired by my exhibit and by our preservation work that he went back to Princeton and did the exact same thing. They started a collection in the university archives. He did a year-long exhibit, and it is now up online. And you should see some of the audio they have, like interview with James Brown. Um, there's all kinds of famous people that came through Princeton over the decades. They have an interview with Fugazi, and I don't even think we have that, and they're from D.C. Um, so definitely visit. It's WPRBHistory.org. Um, absolutely fascinating. And then WKNC at NC State. I was delighted to see this. Um, they don't have audio, but they did find some old documents that describe the station's history. And it says at the top, this project is modeled after the University of Maryland Library Saving College Radio exhibit. Um, and that is exactly what I was hoping to achieve, to just get people really excited about their station's histories. So long live college radio, and thank you for listening. Thank you, Laura, for that uh, presentation very much. And I hope um, uh, we can all tell our own stories so well to our own universities in order to not just inspire each other and ourselves, but also, uh, you know, receive some funding and save ourselves, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, we, we tell our story to, to, to be out there. It's, it's hard sometimes when we're so concerned with, you know, broadcasting what's on the air next and all this kind of thing right. to step back and, and take that look. But I'm glad that you've uh, sort of laid the path for that. Thank you. So that was Laura Schnicker speaking at the College Radio Then, Now, and Next Symposium at University of Virginia, hosted by WTJU, sharing her tips about archiving college radio history. Yeah, and thanks again to Nathan Moore, general manager there at WTJU, for making that tape available to us at Radio Survivor. And thanks to Laura Schnicker, and thanks to you, Jennifer, for bringing back uh, your stories and experiences there at the conference. And uh, next week, on the show, we will have Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota to uh, help help break down what what is going on with the FCC right now with net neutrality and media ownership. Can we stop being a, a like a, a family friendly uh, radio program at that point and go straight to, <laughs> Not to a f- full? To full profanity <laughs> podcasting just this once. I think we can think of some creative, uh, <laughs> some creative. Uh, just for this one show. Uh, Family friendly expletives. It would Come feel on. so good. Maybe we'll do a. <laughs> After uh, Dark? Yeah. Maybe we'll just do a separate. Uh, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll invite, we'll have to invite uh, John Anderson, Professor John Anderson to be on for that, for that After Dark. Think, he would enjoy I think there's that. There's a little bit of. After Dark. Uh, swear yes, words. The, um, that would that the, would help uh, safe harbor version. That's right, the safe harbor, only broadcastable after 10 p.m. Radio Survivor Safe Harbor Edition. <laughs> All right, and thank you to everyone for tuning in and listening. We really appreciate that you spend some time with us. 